If you would, please take your scriptures and turn to Paul's letter of Galatians, to Galatians chapter 4. We're going to attempt to take a large chunk of scripture this morning. I know we've been kind of going at a snail's pace through these things, but that's good because it is, again, some of the things that Paul writes, as Peter himself says, that Paul writes are difficult to understand. So it's good for us to slow down at times, but today this section, I think, all flows together as we consider this, uh, again, this plea from Paul to the Galatians. Again, the impetus, the, the reason why he writes this letter is because this church would seem to be going astray from the true and simple gospel of trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and in Him alone by faith to find favor with God. But here we probably we find one of the most personal and uh, uh, depth, um, uh, deep uh, things that Paul has to write uh, to really anyone in his letters uh, here to the Galatians. And we hear his heart cry as a minister of the gospel uh, for those that seem to be slipping away uh, from the truth of salvation. Uh, in Christ and in the freedom and liberty that He gives. So today we will come to uh, our reading and preaching in um, Galatians 4, verses 8 through 20. But before we go there, let us pray and seek the Lord's help. And let's pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank You that You do, uh, again, Your heart is toward us, and You send uh, Your ministers, Your servants, uh, pastors and, and teachers um, uh, and elders um, and deacons and others, even just uh, Christians, friends uh, that have a heart's yearning for us uh, to be following close to you. And when we see a brother or sister uh, again going astray, even an entire congregation or congregations here, as Paul writes to all the Galatian churches, there were several, um, and sees uh, the false teachers, the wolves, Again, amidst the sheep, leading them astray. Again, um, he, he cries out uh, in love for them. And, and he's, he's perplexed, he's confused, he's astonished at uh, them, uh, again, leaving the truth of the gospel and the freedom and the liberty that they have in Christ. Um, and, and returning back, uh, uh, again, from where they came, in a sense, and Lord, we do pray that you would again bless us as we, uh, as we just uh, hear um, the, the love of this apostle. And through it, we know your love, Father, uh, for us as your children, that we would again um, cling to Christ and never let him go and not look to anything else except for faith in him and rest in him and our security and pardon in him. Because in Him we know that You have given us everything that we need, and You uh, You You help us uh, to see these things, and You keep us from turning aside to these things as You warn us, and You express the reality of these things. But as we hear Paul's plea today, uh, that we, our hearts would be warmed and turned and cling to Christ all the more, and never let Him go. We do pray all these things in His precious name. Amen. If you would please now stand for the reading of God's holy word from Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 8. I do remind you, Knox Presbyterian Church, these are the words 
of your God. But then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. But now after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. You know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at first, and my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. But then was, what then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? They zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you, that you may be zealous for them. But it is good to be zealous in a good thing always, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I have doubts about you. The grass withers and the flower fades. The words of our God, they stand forever. Have you had the experience of someone who painfully and profoundly disappointed you. It may have been a business partner. It may be a family member, a spouse, a husband, or a wife. Children, it may have been your parents, or parents, it may be one of your children. These disappointments come into our lives for some of you, it may be a close friend, perhaps one of your closest friends, maybe someone whom you entrusted, someone you've invested yourself in, poured your life into. You taught them, you prayed, you labored, and yet now they are slipping away. It's almost like a sickening feeling in your gut. It is a heartbreaking feeling. All that you've done seems to be evaporating by some magnetic power, some other influence which causes this person you love to slip away. If you've experienced this, it is perhaps one of the most profound hurts that you can experience in life. And that is where we find the Apostle Paul with the Galatians here. Again, one of the most personal passages that you will find in all of Paul's writings, his heart for the Galatian churches, that he is afraid are slipping away. People that he crossed the seas to minister to, to serve, who he ministered to in the face of persecution, and as we learn here, in sickness, in some form of infirmity, 
He suffered for them. He preached and pleaded with them. He laid out His heart open to them. And yet He feels them slipping away. And this is Paul's heart. He loves them. It comes through in this text. He's poured Himself into them. He took such great joy in their conversion, in their salvation through faith alone in Christ. They were free in Christ to love and serve God, freed from their slavery and their bondage. But something has happened. Wolves have come in, not sparing the flock, turning them from their liberty and their simple trust in Christ alone through faith. And they sought to not only undermine Paul's teaching, these ones that have come in, and his preaching, but they seek to break the Galatians believers' bond with Paul, which was very personal, to switch their allegiance, to pervert the gospel, and lead them astray. But here Paul speaking very personally, the Galatian believers, those who joined him, where he was in his union and his communion with Jesus Christ, as brothers and sisters of the family of God, as sons and heirs of the Father, But now they appear to be turning away from all this and returning to being slaves once again under bondage. And Paul is perplexed. He's astonished. He's startled. He's shocked at this. And he's pleading with them to stop, to open up their eyes to see what is happening. And this brings us to our purpose statement for our message for this morning, which is a perplexed pastor's plea to his spiritual children. A perplexed pastor's plea to his spiritual children. And we'll consider this plea under three points. A little bit different message this morning because of the character and the nature of what Paul writes here. We'll consider this under three points. Our first point is his fear expressed. His fear expressed. We see this in verses 8 through 11. Paul explains why he fears that his apostolic labors are in vain. Why he's tempted to feel that and even express it. He begins by reminding them where they began before he even came to them. Where were they before he came to know them? Verse 8, when I arrived at the beginning of this whole thing, when you first saw my face, where, where were you? This is where they were. They were without God and without hope in the world, were they? Again, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. You were lost. You were condemned. You were serving idols instead of serving God. You did not know God. They were lost without the knowledge of God. They were idol worshipers, and God in the gospel called them from their idolatry to worship the true and living God. And that is a definition of conversion, isn't it? That's what Paul tells the Thessalonians, how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. They were converted. Paul moves from the then, that's who you were, in verse 8 to the now in verse 9. Paul contrasts the then and now. Then their former life, when they were idolaters, worshiping those things, those, those ones that were not gods, to the now. Now their new life in Christ. Their new life in Christ. How did they come to know God? 
It was through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which Paul proclaimed to them. That's what he tells them in verse 13 of our text. And this knowledge of God is not abstract, is it? As we search the scriptures, when we come to the very beginning, that word know in the Hebrew, that word know, yada, again, this idea that, again, this is not an abstract thing. It is very personal. It is, there's a warmness to it. There's an intimacy to it. Paul was just, had just stated that God is their beloved father who calls them as their children, makes them sons. There's a sense of his nearness, of his closeness, and his love for them since they are now his children and sons. But still, Paul, again, does not put the accent on their knowing God. So Paul qualifies his initial statement, because you did come to know God, but rather of being known by God. Even though it is true that believers have come to know God, there is that deeper reality that explains why they know God's saving love, and that is God's knowledge of them. God's knowledge of his people, again, harkens back to that Hebrew word know, yadah. God's knowledge refers to his choosing someone, setting his affection upon someone. Hence, we hear that God knew Abraham. He knew him, not just intellectually, didn't just know about Abraham, of course he did. He knows about everyone. But he chose to put his affection upon Abraham. He knew him intimately. He chose him to be the father of the Hebrew people, to lead them in the fear and admonition and the things that he learned about who God was. It says in in the prophets that God knew Israel. He knew Israel. He chose them from all the other people groups on the face of the earth. We read of God knowing Jeremiah before he was born. It was something God chose to do. Even, again, in contrast to others, he knew Jeremiah before he was born. He appointed him to be his prophet, his minister before all the nations. So the Galatians had come to know God because God knew them. Here were these ones that were outcasts. Here were these ones that were outside the covenant people that had, were condemned, that did not know God. And yet God had placed, again, that, that, that election, that love. He had come and he knew them. And he placed his love upon them. He graciously chose them to be his own. And again, it's the same thing for you. There's, there's a, this intimacy. God has declared that he knows you if you are united to Jesus Christ. He knew you before you knew him. This is what you have in the gospel. And this is what Paul is telling the Galatians. A God who has revealed himself that you might know him. And in knowing him, you've come to realize that God who made the universe, that saves sinners, that he knows you. This should not be taken for granted. This is a blessing upon blessings. He knows your name. He knows the very intimate parts of you. He sent the gospel preaching to you to open up your eyes and your hearts to the truth. He gave you His Spirit. He works in you. He was interested in you before you were interested in Him. What a glorious truth. Paul is saying, these are your privileges, Galatians. This is what you have. You are known of God. And here's the full light and glory of the gospel. Paul is pressing the full matter 
laying down the gauntlet, not only do you know, but you are known by the Creator of the universe, by your God, by your Lord, by your Father. Following the glorious reality and experience of knowing God and even better being known by God, then the apostle communicates his confusion. Confusion at their present movement. Do you remember that this is what you have in Christ and in Christ alone? He communicates his confusion. He's concerned at their present movement. He says in verse 9, How is it that you turn again, that you return to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? It looks like you're throwing all this away. This is where his heartache is. As far as I can tell, I'm afraid that this is what I have proclaimed to you, and you are on the precipice of saying it means nothing to you. You want to return to idolatry and darkness? How can it be possible? How can it possibly be that this is what you profess to be true, what God has done in you, and now this is what you appear to be doing, you are throwing everything away. They are returning to idolatry, to spiritual bondage, to darkness. And Paul is astonished. He's perplexed that the Galatians would desire to return to that which is weak and impoverished, he says. They are on the brink of trading their liberty for slavery and their freedom for bondage. The Galatians' desire for bondage is inexplicable and irrational. So Paul is startled and astonished that the Galatians are turning back to their old ways. But what is equally astonishing here? What is equally astonishing here is that Paul equates their subjection to the Mosaic law Remember, they were Gentiles as equivalent to returning to paganism. For them to subject themselves back to the old way of the Mosaic administration under the old covenant when they've already come to Christ is equivalent to them going back and worshiping their false gods, their idols. Could you imagine a Jew telling you this? Someone who was a Pharisee of a Pharisee? Paul himself. How is it? You can only imagine the shock this would have been upon the Judaizers to say that they were advocating, what they were actually advocating for the Galatians was actually returning to a form of idolatry, of paganism. It's rather alarming, is it not? But again, that is what Paul is saying. To return to the Mosaic law is just like returning to idolatry. This is clearly what the Galatians were doing. Verse 10, they were observing the old covenant Jewish calendar. You observe days and months and seasons and years, and he uses this language in other places. They're following the Jewish calendar of the Old Covenant. Whether it's the Sabbath, whether it's the Passover, whether it's the Day of Atonement, whether it's the Feast of, of Tabernacles or of weeks. Before their conversion, the Galatians were devoted to their false gods, and yet Paul sees their attraction to Judaism 
as equivalent to paganism. Now, how is that? Let's think about this for a minute. How can Paul honestly say that what they're doing is subjecting themselves under the law, which they weren't before, they were Gentiles, they worshiped false gods, but now they're being pulled by the Judaizers away from Christ alone and being brought under this administration of the old ceremonial law. He's again referring to the circumcision question. They haven't circumcised, they haven't been circumcised yet. He goes on to say, if you are circumcised, Christ will mean nothing for you. He's referring to the Judaizers' doctrine that they have been teaching that you must accomplish these external works of the Old Covenant ceremonies in order to be right with God. You're not full Christians yet. You're not full believers yet. You're not full people of God yet. That's why he says later that they're excluding you because you haven't been circumcised. Again, this, this reality that you need to bring some of your own righteousness to the table. And Paul says, if you believe that, you are returning back to paganism, something that is false. You're going back from where you came from, trying to establish your own righteousness, your own works in some way. You're returning to a false religion. And Paul is indicting the Judaizers that they didn't understand the Old Covenant or the Gospel. They were attempting to turn back the clock and live as if Christ had never come. And the point that Paul's making here and the author of Hebrews makes in Hebrews, if you take the substance out and you turn your back on Christ, who is the very substance, and you basically are grabbing hold of and grasping hold of shadows, because those things in the Old Testament were pointing to Christ, and you take the substance, you take Christ out of it, He's the very thing that they were pointing to. It was the whole purpose of the law, of the ceremonial law, the Mosaic administration, which you do Christ. You take Christ out of that, there's nothing there. It's vanity. Again, they were denied. The, the, the Judaizers, in what they were doing, in, in what the Galatians were moving into, they were denying the fulfillment of the ceremonial law. The ultimate purpose of the ceremonial law. They were holding it up as a way of righteousness in order to earn favor with God. So Paul is saying it doesn't matter whether you are either a Jew or a Greek. If you come to Christ, there is no turning back to the old way. That old administration is part of the old creation. You've been called into the new creation in Christ. You can't go back. You need Christ and Christ alone. Again, he goes on to tell the Galatians in chapter 5, for those who trust in the law are cut off from Christ. And if you are cut off from Christ, there's no hope. There's only curse. There's only death. There's only guilt and sin. So Paul expresses his fear here in verse 11. I am afraid for you, lest I have labored for you vain. My heart is breaking. There is danger ahead. He sees the danger. He thinks and he contemplates, you might fail to finish. It looks like you are turning away from the Christ that you professed. It appears as if you are abandoning the gospel. 
It looks like you're going down the road of destruction, Paul says. My aim is to present you to Jesus, but now you're going the other way. He had the end in view. He's worried that something has happened. Like John writes in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, are they going out from us because they really were never of us? Did you never really believe in Christ? He's got a broken heart. Next, he shifts gears to consider his fond memories of them. And we do that, don't we? When someone is slipping away, we begin to recall the fond memories that we have of them. This brings us to our second point, his remembrance of better times. His remembrance of better times. He recounts this in verses 12 through 16. One scholar says, this is Paul's argument from friendship. We were friends. We were close, in close bonds with one another. Friendship is a central theme here. And what we see here is Paul's appeal to them. His first appeal to the Galatians in this letter. This is his first call to action. This is the first imperative of the letter. Right here in verse 12. I beseech you, brethren, I urge you, I appeal to you to become like me. Who was Paul? Paul was a Pharisee, wasn't he? He kept to the nth degree the law as best he could according to his flesh. But he counted all those things as a loss that he might know Christ and know the power of his resurrection. I urge you to become like me. The Galatians are to become like Paul. Paul is free. He's free from the law. He's not under bondage. He's free from the bondage of sin and the curse. He's not under the law, but he is in Christ. He's united to Christ. And he goes on to say, I became like you. This is what he talks to the Corinthians about, right? I became all things to all men that I might gain them. I didn't come to you like a Jew standing over you like the Judaizers doing and trying to exclude you from the people of God. I became like you. I became like a Gentile. I sat down with you. I ate with you. I didn't exclude you. I became like you that I might gain you. And, and at that first, you, you didn't injure me. There was nothing wrong. He came as one of them to minister the gospel to them, and they received them. He, they openly received him. We see Paul's warm reception in verses 13 and 14. Don't you remember how you received me? Paul's welcome among the Galatians was remarkable because his appearance to them wasn't attractive. He apparently suffered from some kind of disease or sickness when he proclaimed the gospel to him. We do not know what Paul suffered from. Scholars speculate on what it was. But we really don't know. But the point is that Paul's sickness was not a liability to the spread of the gospel. It was actually part of it. God, God's regular pattern is to display his strength in and through the weakness of his servants. Well, go back to church history and just study church, church history. How many great men of God and servants of God have struggled with severe illness and maladies? And it was true of Paul. The Galatians were granted spiritual perception because they didn't reject or loathe Paul for his suffering. 
Just as the Galatians heard with faith the message of Christ crucified, they also realized that the message proclaimed by Paul, weakened as he was, whatever this was, was the message of salvation. The power, again, of God, shown through the weakness of the messenger, is shown in the power of the message itself. And they recognized that their eyes were opened because God had sent forth His Spirit into them. The response to Paul was a clear demonstration of Christian character already at work within them, within the Galatians. It evidenced the Spirit at work within them already when encountering Paul. And that's why he moves into verse 15, and he says, what was the blessing that you enjoyed? The blessing they enjoyed. This question brings us back to the Galatians' conversion and their initial relationship with Paul. When everything was sunny and wonderful, everything was going well. What is the blessing that Paul has in mind here? Now, again, it could be just a general blessing of joy and blessing and all that, but more than likely he's referring to their reception of the Holy Spirit. That was the mark of the new covenant believer, right? That was, again, the benefit of the gospel, that they received the Spirit of God, which they received by faith, Paul reminds them in chapter 3. Verses 1 through 5. The work of the Holy Spirit in their midst, the initial warmth of the relationship between Paul and the Galatians is emphasized here. Their joy at receiving the Spirit is so great that they were happy to suffer themselves, to tear out their own eyes and give them to Paul. That might have something to do with his affliction, but it could just be, again, a figure of speech like, I'll give you the, 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 the shirt off my back. They would do whatever they had to do to assist him. And he's like, that doesn't fit with what's going on now, does it? This is how you were. This was our relationship. We were so close, in close bonds with one another. Such love for Paul from the Galatians seemed to confirm that they were truly rece- had truly received the Spirit of God. And so why the change in relationship? Paul obviously has heard that something has changed. Why the change in relationship? So again, Paul raises the astonishment in verse 16. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Do you treat me like an enemy? Again, he writes as almost like a wounded lover. His gospel has not changed. He still proclaims the good news about the cross and the empty tomb, the resurrection. He still preaches justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Yet the Galatians were beginning to reject that one true gospel, the gospel that Paul preached. Unwilling to hear the truth, they were treating Paul like an enemy. The very message that first created this bond of their affection for him for Paul, was beginning to cause a rift between them. The change of Paul's relationship with the Galatians is nothing short of astonishing. Only their turning from the gospel can account for their defection from him. Opposition with Paul is equated with rejection of the gospel. Again, as we learned at the very beginning of the book, to reject Paul's gospel is to reject the gospel. Just as their warm reception of Paul indicated their acceptance of the saving, of the, the, the saving message, they seem to have lost sight of Paul, as if their eyes were ripped out. What happened? Where did all this go? 
What happened to the relationship? What has changed? Well, this brings us to our final point, where he communicates his desire for them. What is Paul's desire for him? What is the apostle's desire for the Galatians? Verses 17 through 20. So Paul obviously had a desire for the Galatians, but so did his opponents. After Paul left, they thought they, they come into Galatia and they begin to stir things up. But not for the Galatians' good. They are very zealous, Paul says. They are very zealous for you. But he says it's not for your good. They did not have the Galatians' best intentions in mind or interests in mind. Paul acknowledges again the zeal of the false teachers in verse 17. They had zeal, just like Paul had zeal. But as he tells in Romans, many Jews have zeal, but without knowledge. Without knowledge. And that's where we, we, again, coming back to where he started from, right? You know God. There's knowledge there because of the gospel. And you are known by God. The Judaizers were the wrong kind of zealots. In their misguided zeal for the law, they told the Galatians that they had to become Jews in order to be good Christians. He says... They're excluding you in order that you might follow after them. That they, They're in some kind of secret uh, uh, position with God. That they're closer to God than you, and you need that. And so, again, they're excluding you like a, a, a club. We, we can't get in. So there must be something that I want there to draw them in. If they're going to be Christians, they're going to have to become Jews first. You have to get in through the way we tell you. This heretical teaching had the result of dividing Jews from the Gentiles inside the church where we are all supposed to be one in Christ, as Paul has said. It also had the result of turning the Galatians away from Paul and the one true gospel of free grace. The Judaizers, in contrast to Paul, had an ardent desire to be praised and honored. That's what they were after. So their zeal was misplaced because it was self-serving. What they really wanted was their own disciples. They wanted their own followers, as false teachers always do. So they tried to win the Galatians away from Paul by flattering them and courting their affections. The false teachers are zealously courting you for no good, Paul says. They are intentionally campaigning. Or as one said, they are politicking. They want to exclude you and they want your allegiance to move from the true preacher and apostle of the gospel to them. Paul's crying out to them, they want to divide us. They want to scatter us. They want to break our fellowship. They want to tear us from one another. They want to cut the Galatians off from Paul and cut Paul off from the Galatians. Quick lesson here. Anyone who wants you to follow them personally instead of Christ, they do not have your good intentions at heart. Paul didn't worry about himself. He didn't care about himself. If they don't follow me, that's fine. But you're being drawn away from Christ. From Christ himself. Paul instructs the Galatians here that zeal is not wrong. Being zealous is a good thing as long as it is toward the right object and end. 
like faith. Verse 18, But it is good to be zealous in a good thing always. Zeal is wonderful as long as it directed to the right object. If one is zealous for what is good, then one's life will be turned toward God, toward Christ, and pleasing to Him. Paul was not jealous here for his own reputation. If others had arrived in Galatia preaching the gospel and strengthening the Galatians in the faith, he rejoices in it. And he often rejoices with those fellow workers of Christ. Think of Apollos. Again, the Corinthians seemed to divide them, right? One is of Apollos, one is of Paul, one is of Cephas or Peter. They were dividing, and he said, no, as long as Christ is preached... Paul did not, he did, again, but he does use his own relationship with them to say, Why, what have I done? I haven't changed. The gospel I preach has not changed. I came to you in much weakness and you received me at first. What has changed? Something in you has changed. And these ones that were zealous among you have led you away. But again, the point is Paul's desire for them and what is Paul's ultimate desire for the Galatians? I think we find that in verse 19. Verse 19 really nails it. My little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. Those are wonderful words. Those are comforting words. That's what Paul's desire was for them. But I want you to just stop and think and look at that verse for a minute. The imagery there is rather striking. Think about this. Think about the imagery. My little children for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. In verse 19, Paul puts forth a striking image. It should jolt us, really. It doesn't. It, it comforts us, which is good. That's what the Word of God should do. But Paul, as a man, is in labor. <laughs> Right? He says, I labor for you. He's talking about birth pains is what he's talking about. What women go through, what you guys go through when you have children. That's what Paul, that's the imagery Paul's painting. A Paul, as a man is in labor, gasping in pain as one who is about to give birth. And we expect the next part of the verse to speak of the birth of the Galatians. But strikingly, Paul shifts the image again at the end. And now he speaks of as Christ the one being born, and the Galatians as the mother. Because a baby's formed in the womb, right? He says, I'm giving birth, right? I'm laboring for you again until Christ is formed, not in me, in you. Christ, just like as a baby is, 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 is formed in the mother's womb by God. That's the imagery that he's using here. So the mixing of these metaphors, these pictures, is certainly intentional and was designed to shake the Galatians up out of their spiritual stupor, their lethargy. Paul's labor pains indicate that the Galatians need to be converted all over again, so to speak. He doesn't really say that, but that's what he means. Because they're going back. They're returning to where they were in their pre-conversion state. By going after the works of the law. As in verse 9, Paul fears that the Galatians were reverting and being converted again to paganism. So Paul portrays himself as their spiritual mother, as one who needs to endure again birth pains for a second time. You know how painful it is when you had your child. Imagine having to do it again. A second time for the same child. 
That's what Paul's saying. The labor pains that Paul endures as an apostle may also characterize this present age. It's part of his suffering. Remember when God called him. Ananias said, this one has been out. He's a persecutor of the church. And, and the Lord tells Ananias, he says, I'm calling him for my special purpose to raise him up, and I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. This pre, again, the, the, this present age, this evil age, Paul speaks of his labor pains. He has in mind his suffering as an apostle, for his apostolic sufferings were the means by which God uses that the gospel becomes a reality among the Galatians. And the reality of their birth will be evident when Christ takes shape in them. When they reach a stage when it is evident that they will no longer turn away from Christ. That's what Paul is longing for. The apostles' ultimate goal was to see Christ take shape in the lives of his people, to see Christ formed in them. This is what Paul was striving and struggling for. He wanted to see them safely delivered as the mature sons and daughters of God. My little children, for whom I labor and birth again until Christ is formed in you. There is the tenderest statement here when he says, my little children, you think of a spiritual father's love, but combined with that powerful imagery of a laboring mother who goes through excruciating pain and danger and great personal loss in order to bring them new life. And Paul says, this is how I feel about it. This is how he feels about the Galatians. Paul's anxiety over the Galatians is evident. The weakness of the Galatians affected Paul. Their weakness in turning back to those weak and beggarly things. They're not yet mature. And it's affecting Paul so that he was deeply worried about their finishing, about their future. He longed for the day when this anxiety was a thing of the past and the Galatians had reached maturity. So he wouldn't have to fret over them. He wouldn't be anxious and worried about them. And lastly, we read of Paul's desire to be present with them, right? He wants to be present with them. Verse 20, the letter to the Galatians cannot replace a face-to-face -face encounter in which Paul can engage the Galatians closely. He talks about the Father being close to them, desiring to be with them. He desires to be with them. He is Christ's apostle. He represents Christ. Christ wants to be close to them and near them. So does the apostle. If he were present with them, he could respond to the dynamics of everyday life. He could see the reactions and, and respond to that. To each issue they raise, he could respond to it. But since he was absent from them, he must resort to writing, not knowing how they would react to all that he had written. He says that he wished he had changed his voice, his tone change of tone or voice is perhaps reflected in the next section when he wages a different kind of argument 
that's going to be very difficult if you think some of the things we've talked about already, wait until we get into the rest of chapter 4, and he brings up an allegorical argument trying to persuade his readers. He definitely changes his tone in the last half of chapter 4. But Paul was deeply troubled by these little children, the Galatians, attraction to Old Covenant Judaism and to the Old Testament law. And it was, so to speak, that he was tearing out his own heart to understand why. He says, for I have doubts about you, but that's actually where we get part of our title. Literally, he says, I am perplexed about you. It perplexes me. I don't understand why you have a desire, you have an attraction to go back to these things. Well, let us conclude with, let us conclude with some closing points of application here um, to help us just to solidify what we've talked about. I think we see here very clearly that there is a complexity to conversion. We see the complexity of conversion here in these passages. Paul wonders if he has labored in vain for the Galatians. Are they truly Christians? He speaks to them if they are. Brothers and sisters in Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. They are sons. They are heirs. But at the moment, they don't seem to be acting like it. He contemplates the possibility that they are not truly converted at all. Genuine conversion cannot be restricted to a one-time event in the past. Yes, there is a day, maybe a perhaps a day, maybe not, that you can think of. Yes, I was converted on this day. But again, it doesn't just, it's not static. It can't just stay there. Those who are saved demonstrate their new life by continuing in the faith day after day until that final day. Their perseverance, their endurance, their faith functions as the evidence that they have truly come to know God. And that's fresh and new every day. Therefore, the grace of God can never become an excuse for a license to go astray those who are truly saved demonstrate it by clinging to Christ until the end. We should be warned that there are such things as apostates. It's very clear from the Word of God. There are those that seem to be believers, but in the end they turn away. That should cause us all the more to cling unto Christ and to cry out for His mercy and grace. In our lives. Secondly, not only the complexity of conversion, but Paul's argument from friendship serves as a reminder that believers are bound together to love one another. That's what Paul's doing in this, even though he writes things that are hard for them to hear, that they might reject. Believers are bound together as brothers and sisters to love one another. We are to show concern and care for those of the faith. When we see our brothers and sisters struggling, especially in spiritual things, but even physical things, all these things, we should be there to help. And, and we should, again, part of that is our witness, right? So that unbelievers see the love that we have for one another and know that we are Christians. We are followers of Christ. And the next one goes right with it, number three. There's the need for exercising patience and love, is there not? In the body of Christ, in the family of God. 
There are a lot of problems in the family of God, just like our, our regular families are problems. But ministers, those who serve, fellow Christians, everyone must be patient with one another. The Christian life is not often characterized by straight line growth, is it? It's like a roller coaster. Sometimes it gets really deep, really way down. Believers can be waylaid and set off horse. And every, things in your own life should, should communicate that to you. You know that you're not just always growing in Christ. Again, there, there's ups and downs to this. We have our own lives, and there's a number of things that set us off track. But love responds to people where they are. With a desire for them to hope to be at a better place, but not always there yet. And then that brings us to our fourth and final application and just observation. That the lack of spiritual growth often brings anguish. A lack of spiritual growth in others often brings anguish and pain to us. We can be perplexed. We can be confused about how to help others along. Paul struggles to know how to argue for the Galatians here. I think that's evident in the epistle. He doesn't know exactly what argument would work on them and what to persuade them to come back. He doesn't know what to say next. And we do that as well. Your minister doesn't always have answers to these things, right? We pray, right? What's the best approach? What's the effective approach? Those of us that are ministering and serving don't have all the answers, and often we don't have many of the answers of why this one is going astray, why they are where they are. We don't know. But like Paul, we keep praying, we keep trying, tempting, we keep loving, we keep waiting, and we keep hoping. We pray to have that same kind of affection as Paul himself shows and expresses here, to exert, exhort them as little children, as brothers and sisters in the Lord. And I pray that you all continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our triune God. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we do thank you that you write love letters to us, your people. And here we have this love letter that your apostle pens, but we know it is from your very heart, Lord, to the Galatians. And you write it to us as well. That's what your word is. And we thank you and praise you and that we would receive it wholeheartedly, knowing that you are not our enemy, and yet you tell us the truth. You are the one who loves us and cares for us as your children, as your brothers and sisters. And we pray that we would continue to grow in our knowledge of you, our triune God. Thank you for knowing us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.